So my wife and I, uh, one of our sons and his wife and our new granddaughter live in Los Angeles. So we visited them a few weeks ago. We had one day free, so we made some plans. And the way that you make plans today, like you can completely know exactly what is going to happen when. So we're gonna go to a restaurant. I look at all the restaurants in the area that we might go to. I read Yelp reviews and TripAdvisor reviews. I look at the pictures of the foods that we might eat. I read the menu. Oftentimes you can kind of take a virtual tour of the inside of the place so I know what table I want to sit at. <laughs> and, and then I plan the route, right? And with Google Maps, you can get really up-to-date, accurate information about exactly how long it's going to take you to get there. So we get in the car, Google Maps, Miss Google is talking to me, telling me where to turn, where to not turn. But then this being Los Angeles with freeways, <laughs> an accident happens, right? And I know it because of the little accident symbol. But rather than being concerned for the people who are now in distress somewhere on the road, I feel my own distress because things are not going according to plan. The script is being messed with. Google tells me it's going to take me seven minutes longer to get there. And, right, and, and it's sort of ridiculous because we have the whole day. A seven-minute delay getting to lunch doesn't matter. But I feel my whole body becoming tense. If I was doing the mindfulness practice, you know, mindfulness being a thing today, where in your body are you feeling tension? The right question would be the reverse. Where in my body am I not feeling tension? <laughs> it's a way that we can live life today. We can, with precision, produce a script, produce a plan for how things are going to go, where we're going to go, when we're going to go, when we're going to arrive, what we'll find when we arrive, no matter what the plan is. But my message today as a part of our Lenten meditation, a part of our Lenten series of messages where we are renouncing something we're leaving behind, announcing what we're embracing in its place, saying no to something and yes to something that we're putting in there. Today I'm renouncing the script and I'm saying yes to disruption as a way both of interacting with the distress and chaos of what it means to be human and a way of accessing the good that God brings to us. So our way into this is through a part of the crucifixion story. This comes to us from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 16, I've come into a way recently of interacting with the story that I'm sure will, it informs my own interaction with the story and what I'll bring to you across the course of time. We receive these texts as written things, okay? And uh, as something that somebody wrote down and we sort of imagine a text coming to people, maybe they read it, maybe they you know, read it by themselves or read it together. <laughs> and the way we read texts now, you know, you curl up with a book and you have your nightlight on and you think about it and ruminate on it and maybe you talk about it. 
What actually would have been the case back then, so only three to five percent of people could read, fewer could write, so the way that the information came was as a memorized performance. Someone would have memorized the whole of the Gospel of Mark, for example, would have come to your community, everybody would have assembled like this, and it would have been a performance. The person would have talked it through to you, but with emotion, with movement, and it would have been an interactive experience. And that helps to understand the information itself, what was being communicated, why, how it would have been received. So think about that. I'm just going to present a little snippet from this story. Then the soldiers led Jesus inside into the courtyard, which is to say the praetorium, and they called together the whole cohort. And they clothed Jesus in purple and plating a thorn crown, they placed it around him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Judeans! And they battered his head with a rod, and they spat on him. And going down on their knees, they made obeisance to him. And when they had mocked him and stripped off the purple, they put his clothes back on him, and they lead him away so that they might crucify him. And they press into service a certain passerby coming in from the field, Simon, the Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, so that he might carry Jesus' cross. And they bring Jesus to the place Golgotha, which being interpreted means skull's place, and they gave him wine infused with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucify him and portion out his garments, casting a lot upon them regarding who would take what. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the epigraph of the charge inscribed against him was the king of the Judeans. So, one way that I found it helpful in trying to imagine a person talking to a crowd and presenting this information, in the story, like there's the main story that we kind of understand with its narrative arc and the specific things that happen, but a lot of times, too, there are these little inclusions that just seem strange. Like, why is that there? Who cares? What would that have meant? And so here I find that with Simon the Cyrenian. And I have to imagine, so it seems to me like just kind of this random inclusion. Here's this guy who's pressed into service. We don't know why or what that would have meant to either the writer or the people listening. But if you think about it, so the Christians back then would have been a small community. There aren't that many of them. Tiny gatherings of people scattered about which means that if somebody was noteworthy, that person probably would have been noteworthy to them all. And so when the speaker is saying to the crowd, Simon the Cyrenian and his sons Rufus and Alexander, it's likely that this would have been a known person. 
Somebody who everybody was familiar with, aware of, aware of this person, aware of these names. Simon the Cyrenian and his children, Rufus and Alexander. Oh, that's where they came into the story. I've heard those names. And so then you can start to wonder, well, who was this person and how did he come to be in the story? We don't have a lot of information about him, but there's enough to produce a credible narrative arc for this person that's quite remarkable. So Simon the Cyrenian. Cyrenia was a region in modern-day Libya, so North Africa. The likely identity of this person, based on demographic understanding, so Northern Libya, probably of African descent, so probably dark in skin color. And there also was a sizable Jewish population there. So perhaps a Judean, a Jewish person of dark skin color. And the reason that he is in Jerusalem at this time passing by is he probably was there for the Passover festival. Right? This was the time. This is when you'd come. And it seems likely that he came with his family. And it may have been a yearly occurrence for him, but it also could have been a once-in-a-lifetime event. You can show the slide of the map. So I Google mapped it. <laughs> from, so from Libya and walking, okay? So walking from Libya to Jerusalem, Google Maps puts it at about 360 hours, which it says generously as 15 days, but that's walking without stopping. <laughs> okay? So this probably is about a month of walking each way. And Simon the Cyrenian, he would have been coming... So if he's coming to attend the Passover festival, one of the things that he probably knows to do is to keep his head low. The Judeans were not favored people. They were oppressed. Israel was oppressed, occupied. Jerusalem oppressed, occupied. Kind of a restive place. The Judeans chafing at their oppression, but not really being able to do anything about it, but still getting in trouble every once in a while. So Simon the Cyrenian comes probably with his family, we know he has at least two sons, shows up, and his script, right, is going to be to attend the festival, to go to the temple, to do the Jewish religious thing, to do it well, to do what he's supposed to do, have the experience, and then whoosh, head back for home. But there's a problem, right? The Roman soldiers actually have a problem. They have one of these upstart Judeans who's been accused of treason, who's been at the center of some unrest, and they need to execute him. They need to put him on the cross. The problem is that they have beaten him up. Right? They have harmed him. They've ridiculed him. They've mocked him. They've also harmed him physically. The way crucifixion worked, <clears throat> so you have the cross... The center pole stays in the ground. That's not removed. But the crossbar is. And so the people being crucified need to carry their crossbar out to the cross. But here's a guy that's beaten up, and he probably just doesn't have the physical capacity to do it. So we've got to get it out there somewhere. We're not going to do it. Who shall we find? Well, who better 
than an outsider who is still one of them, right? So here comes Simon the Cyrenian, and it was probably pretty easy to detect that he's not from here. Maybe because of his skin color, maybe because of his style of dress, he still appears to be a Judean, and many would be here from far away, but because he is not from here, he has no power. He doesn't have a community here that's going to be upset if he's mistreated. He doesn't have a rich set of relationships, people he can go to for help, to say, hey, this isn't right. So he's easy to press into service on their behalf. And so you think about him. He's come to town from far off, maybe the trip of a lifetime with wife and at least two boys, just wants to do the religious thing, enjoy the week, head for home. And the next thing he knows, he is pressed into service on behalf of somebody who has been accused of treason and is about to be crucified. He has to carry this crossbar out to the cross. And even though he has nothing whatsoever to do with what's going on, you know guilt by association, right? People are going to wonder, why is he doing this? How is he involved? What's happened to him? Is he in trouble? The last thing you would want to do is to be associated with this kind of event, which is where this story becomes remarkable, right? Now, I admit, we don't have a lot of details in the story, right? So we don't know that this is what happened, but it seems pretty credible based on how things play out, based on how he's described and his role in the story that he is named, that his children are named. Because what would tend to happen, what I would do, what most of us would do, I think, given what's going on, is we would push away what's happened as quickly as we can. Simon the Cyrenian, pressed into service, carries the part of the cross out. According to the story, it doesn't even appear that he meets Jesus. He does his thing, and then the story says afterwards, Jesus is brought out to the cross. But Simon, it seems, instead of then running away, instead of suppressing this, instead of pushing this out of his mind, instead of saying, yeah, nothing to pay attention to, nothing going on here, going about his business, it seems more likely that he took an interest. That something in what was going on with Jesus caused him to, instead of shutting his eyes, instead of running away, to say, who is this man? Why is he being treated this way? Maybe Simon finds some of Jesus' followers, the women who are weeping, and says, tell me what's going on. Tell me who he is. Help me understand. Maybe he finds some of Jesus' followers lurking in the shadows. So that instead of ignoring what's going on, instead of going back to the script, he pays attention to the disruption. He leans into it. He becomes a known figure, Simon the Cyrenian, the children, Alexander and Rufus, who are a part of the story. <clears throat> and thinking about this, paying attention to Simon, to the way that he seems to lean into the disruption, to go with it, 
to organize his life around it, <laughs> flipped me into paying attention to this as a part of the life of Jesus. And Jesus, once I started to wonder, well, Jesus, how do you interact with disruption as opposed to going with the script? The whole life of Jesus seems to be organized around disruption and chaos and intrusion. So I just, you can put up the first slide of the stories. So these are just stories that I thought of related to this idea. And there's a second list too. You can just hang on to this one. So all of these stories in the life of Jesus, whether it's him interacting with the chaos and distress of the people around him or him bringing the goodness of God into the world, do not happen but for the intrusion of disruption and the paying attention to that, the welcoming of disruption. You can show the next slide too. So it's just everywhere. Jesus is the honored guest at a dinner hosted by a bunch of important men into which barges a woman who they all revile and say, Jesus, you should send her packing. Jesus says, no, we are going to stop and we are going to pay attention to her. Jesus is marching through a town where a reviled figure is hanging out in a tree looking down at him. And Jesus says, stop the parade. I'm going to talk to him and then I'm actually going to go to his house for dinner. There are some of these where it's like nested disruptions. Jesus is in a boat. He, he goes on a boat across a lake with his disciples to a beach. He is greeted on the shore there by a man who's <clears throat> afflicted with demons, raging, threatening, terrorizing the town. Jesus says, we're going to stop and have an interaction with this man. Heals the man, goes back across the lake with his disciples where he's met by Jairus, an upstanding figure in town who says, would you please come this way with me to my daughter to help her? On the way there, a woman touches his robe and he says, we've got to stop the parade and pay attention to what just happened because I just healed somebody. Everybody says, what are you talking about? How can you even pay attention to that? Jesus heals her, goes on to Jairus' daughter and heals her. There's a story Jesus tells where four people go on the same journey. The first one is beaten, left for dead by the side of the road. The next two people who come along encounter this figure, cross to the other side and keep going. They both happen to be upstanding religious people. The fourth person who comes along is reviled by the religious establishment, but stops. And the story of the Good Samaritan does not happen but for the embracing of disruption. And the depth of embracing is extreme. The Samaritan stops, covers the wounds with oil, bathes them, cleans them, puts the injured man on his donkey, takes the donkey to an inn, settles the man into a room, pays the innkeeper some money, and says, I'm going to go on my journey, but when I come back, I'm going to stop here again and see how things have gone and whether you need more money. The depth of Jesus embracing disruption is astounding. And it... <laughs> When I see myself in light of this, I think 
you know, Jesus, what are you doing? It's so far beyond what I would conceive of. It makes it clear that whatever Jesus is doing, as it reflects back to me, my engagement with it is aspirational at best. Right? So I... Uh, in a variety of settings, interact with the distress and chaos of other people. I'm a psychiatrist, right? And so that's a part of my work as a psychiatrist. As a pastor, interacting with our community and with people in various types of need. And it's, it's an experience that I love. I love the kind of work that I do. I love the rewardingness of being able to help people who are in distress, who are experiencing difficulties in life, but I'm also very aware that even in those settings, how I do it is pretty scripted. You know, any of you who've been to the doctor, <laughs> you know that that is a highly scripted, structured experience that is supposed to go according to some sort of schedule, even if it sometimes doesn't. <laughs> and even the way that we pay attention today, that we engage in service and service activities, it still is the case that we try to have it be as structured and as scripted as possible. But Jesus seems to, embracing, to be embracing an ethic of disruption that's way beyond even what his same age peers are comfortable with. Like we could look back and say, well, they didn't have clocks back then. How scripted could it have been? But Jesus is always going against the resistance of even his friends to disruption. When the children want to... Ah, <laughs> oh, such a disruption. <laughs> when the children want to come to Jesus and his disciples say, no, 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 Jesus says, let them come. Blind Bartimaeus, Jesus is marching along and blind Bartimaeus cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Everybody says, hush. But Jesus says, stop the parade. We are going to pay attention to him. It seems that he has an appreciation of the chaoticness of the human condition. And that he leans into that as a structuring principle for his life, which seems like it doesn't make sense. But he is so deeply attuned to and permissive of and welcoming of disruption, it seems like he just sort of plans on it. So that when it comes, he turns towards it, he faces it, he embraces it. And we have these amazing stories that have come down to us across the course of time. I think Jesus, too, has an understanding that this also reflects how God comes to you and me. Because the true advent of God into your life and mine is unavoidably disruptive. It can't not I think about all the goodnesses that have come to me, my wife, every single one of my children, every single one of their partners, all four of my grandchildren, lovely, through and through, things that I would deeply want, but also <laughs> very disruptive, right? Deeply disruptive, both just in terms of the structure of life what they require of me, but also in the way that they cause me to think. My children all have minds of their own. They come to think things that I haven't thought, and they bring them to me. 
and it is a representation of God coming to me, but it's disruptive. I think about our church's turn towards inclusion, you know, that has been playing out now for many years. Um, something we talk about a lot, because it's central to not just a way of interacting with a specific group of people, but because it disrupted our whole conception of God and church and community and right and wrong and good and bad and in and out. And I think this is something that Jesus is aware of, too. So as he's marching to Jerusalem, his followers, they know the script. We're going to go. We're going to be awesome. It'll be great. We're going to win. Jesus is going to take over. We're going to finally cast off our oppressors, and we're going to be in charge. And Jesus says to them multiple times, um, it's not going to go quite like that. I'm going to be arrested. They're going to treat me badly. They're going to put me to death. And at the end of that, I'm going to, you know, come back to life again. I think he's saying it not just so that they won't be freaked out, you know, not just as a way of making them calm as it happens, but because it will be a profoundly disruptive event and you have to embrace the disruption of it. You know, one of the challenges, I think, in the way that we do Lent and Easter and the cross and the resurrection, so it's a part of the church calendar, as it should be, something we should think about and remember. We celebrate it with lovely things like bunnies and balloons and butterflies, as we should, right? It should be bright and colorful. But a part of what can happen is we can diminish or suppress the disruptiveness of it. I think Jesus understood and many people have understood, and we do this some with the, with, with the, the ceremonies. It should be terrifying. It should be undoing, unsettling. It should be the grand disruption of every human life and of humanity. And so when we package it as, oh, it symbolizes the way life works, the cycle and the rhythms and, you know, life coming out of death and flowers emerging from the ground, there is a diminishing of the disruption of it in what happens in Jesus' dying and coming back to life. God is saying, I am here to turn everything upside down. The least shall be the greatest and the greatest least. The first, last, and the last first. Those in the margins and the center and those in the center and the margins. I am undoing business as usual. I am flipping the script. I am changing how power works. I am changing the structuring of society. I am substituting service for domination and love for killing. And so Jesus, I think, knows that this event must be about disruption. Unless we embrace that possibility, we will not get what God means for us to get through it. So that's the invitation, I think, for us this morning, at least for me. I have felt this stirring, like, like you know, mindfulness again. And... I just picture Simon the Cyrenian, this moment where, <clears throat> so mindfulness is supposed to sort of make me aware of myself and calm and non-anxious and attuned. 
And I have felt God inviting me into using it as a practice to be attuned to disruption. To instead of pushing it away, saying, huh, maybe I should pay attention to that, lean into that. Who is this man? What is he about? Why is he being treated this way? What does that mean for me? 